0: Well, good morning. Some cool mornings like this reminded of something I saw a few months ago. It was uh, some of our fellow brothers and sisters a little ways away in, I think it was Russia, and they were doing a baptism, and it was not the summer. And uh, two of the leaders of the church were out there breaking ice with a sledgehammer. Um, and it was not a quick task. I mean, they were chunks of ice that you could have gone ice fishing on. So it's, uh, it's helpful to have that perspective, it's also wonderful to remember that we have brothers and sisters across the world who are worshiping our same Lord and Savior who are asking that same question and praying that same thing, Lord let your will be done not ours. And that's our desire this morning, it actually fits very well with our text as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. You can go and turn to Matthew chapter 25. Deadlines are a blessing and a curse, aren't they? So they're a curse because it feels like the sword sword hanging over your head, waiting to come down upon you if you don't get it done. At the same time, many, if not most of us, perhaps all of us, would, without a deadline, find ourselves procrastinating, maybe putting off today what could be done tomorrow. Well, Christ is not unaware of this. God the Father is certainly not unaware of this. He created us. He knows our innermost being. And so in lieu of a deadline, since we do not know the day that the Lord is returning, he's made that abundantly clear in our study of Matthew 24 and 25. It's not for us to know those times. How else are we to be encouraged, motivated, to stay busy, to do the things that we are to be doing, to be disciplined, to be diligent. Well, that's what our study this morning is about. It's about maintaining that discipline, about being ready when he comes back, even though we don't know the exact day or the hour. If you have your Bibles open, you can read along with me as we pick up in chapter 25 with a second of three parables that Jesus is telling as he further explains what the kingdom of God is like, specifically related to his return, to his second coming. Beginning in verse 14, we read, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who calls his own slaves and entrusts his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey." immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who had received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought... Five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed, and I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, I have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, "You wicked, lazy slave. you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scatter no seed? Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him. Give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Pray with me. Father, as we come to a text this morning that for many of us is very familiar, I pray that you would help us to slow down to pay attention to what you are teaching us that we would focus and we would walk away this morning with an understanding of what it means to be ready, to be ready for the master's return. We pray this in your name, amen. Our parable this morning begins there in verse 14, and our hint about what the subject is is that word it. We remember, as we've already noted, that Jesus is telling three parables in rapid fire succession, and this is number two of those three. And so we really only need to go back to the first chapter of of verse-verse of chapter 25, to that first parable, and we are reminded that these are analogies or metaphors of the kingdom of God. Even more specifically, if we go back to verses 42 and 44 of chapter 24, we know that this relates primarily to preparedness for the return of the Son of Man, of Jesus Christ, who will establish the kingdom relates to the disciples' question all the way back at the beginning of verse 24 in chapter 3. The opening parable in chapter 25 that we looked at last week emphasized the importance of being ready and preparing for the Lord's return. These final two parables, both of which are rather long, they help us to answer the question of what are we to be doing during that time? Or what does it mean to be ready? It's a message and a warning, particularly to those who have heard the message of Jesus Christ, who have heard the good news of the gospel, and it serves as a motivation for sharing that message as well. J.C. Ryle noted, vigilance is the key of the first parable. Diligence is that of the second. The story of the virgins calls on the church to watch. The story of the talents calls on the church to work. Now, before we jump into our story, we need to probably provide a little bit of context, specifically around that word slave. You see, in the ancient world, it's a little bit different. This is, after all, a story about a master and his slaves. In the 21st century, it may seem a bit odd to think of a wealthy landowner entrusting all of his money to slaves. But in the ancient Near East, slaves were teachers, they were accountants, they were even treasurers. These were not just household slaves or agricultural workers, but highly skilled business experts. The term slave in Greek has a, a broad semantic range that encompasses everything from a shadow slave to the manager of a household. And that goes way back. In fact, we have a great example of that with Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph, who is sold by his own brothers into slavery, and then was sold in Egypt to the head of the pharaoh's bodyguard, to Potiphar, he rose from a low, the lowliest of slaves who first enters the house to administering the entirety of Potiphar's household. Slaves in the ancient world could enjoy considerable responsibility, privilege, and authority. There's really nothing surprising then that a master going on a journey would entrust his cash assets to three of his slaves. And that's where the story opens. Before leaving, the master calls together three of his slaves, and he entrusts them with most, if not all, of his material possessions. And then he leaves. At this entry point into the story, there's nothing unique, there's nothing different about these slaves. But that's about to change. Verse 15 tells us that the master has measured up each of these three slaves. He's looked at their abilities. They're each unique characteristics. And he's proportionately distributing his possessions amongst them based upon their abilities. And the possessions are summed up with the term talent, which is a monetary value. Each talent was equal to about 20 years of work for a day laborer. This was no small sum of money. Today's value may be somewhere between... million dollars each. So it's a large sum. In total, Master's distributing somewhere between 8 to 12 million in financial assets. That's quite the nest egg. Take note of the reference also to each according to his own ability. Again, this is a parable, but it's a, as we've talked about before, parables serve different functions. This one is something of a metaphor, a metaphor of the kingdom of God and preparation for the return of the Son of God. And so it's really not a stretch to see similarities to the gifts and abilities that God has given to persons, especially when we have the rest of the New Testament. And verses like these from Romans 12, where Paul makes and introduces the exact same concept. In Romans 12, verses 3 through 6, Paul says, For through the grace given to me... I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. But think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Then down to verse 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. In other words, don't try to punch above your weight class. We've each been given different gifts, different abilities. Be diligent with those things. Or with reference to what we looked at a few weeks ago from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Interestingly, our English word, talent, when we think of talents and abilities, it's actually derived from this Greek monetary term. You might wonder, how did we get there? Most secular etymological studies, that is word studies... And tracing the history of how words develop, even the secular ones will note that our modern meaning of talent, our English meaning of talent as an ability or a skill, is derived from Matthew 25. It really came to be fixed in our English language in the 14th and 16th century. It's because of this close connection, the connection that becomes more certain and more clear throughout the rest of the New Testament. Returning, though, to our story, we have an example of talents given. Five to one, two to another, one to a third. And again, these are not small sums of money. Even the slave who received just one talent received one million or more in assets to manage and care for. The term entrusted also does not simply mean keep safe. Context determines its precise meaning. And here the master is handing over his possessions to the stewards of the house. The responsibility of the slave was to both protect and grow the value of the asset. Again, remember Joseph, a slave in the house of Potiphar. And you read in Genesis 39, beginning in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man as he was in the house of his master the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight, became his personal servant, and he, that is Potiphar, made him overseer over his entire house. All that he owned, he put in his charge. Once again, we find all that is owned handed to slaves. This handing over, this entrusting, has the expectation that the slave, the steward, will work hard to cause it to prosper and grow. In other words, the slave is to be busy working, making Use of what has been put into his care. And that's precisely what happens. As soon as the master has departed, at the end of verse 15, in verse 16, the slave who received five talents, immediately, the text says, put it to work. And he worked hard. He gained five more talents, we learn. In verse 17, the slave who received two talents did likewise. Immediately, he goes, he works hard, and he doubles. By the time the master returns, he has doubled what was entrusted to him. That immediately at the start of verse 16 speaks to the promptness of the slaves in putting the money to work. They were impressed with the importance of this task, and they got to work right away. And so both of these first two slaves double their money. They earn 100% profit. And really the implication is clear at this point. Jesus expects his disciples to be diligent, to be faithful, to work hard in this life, doing all that he has instructed while waiting for his return, And for the kingdom, all is well, except there's a verse 18, and it starts with but. You see, there's a plot twist. The last servant is unwilling to work or take risks. So what does he do? He digs a hole, and he buries his money. There really could be no better definition of laziness than that. In fact, that's exactly how the master describes him upon his return in verse 26. Now, the laziness is not in burying the money. Burying the money was actually safer than depositing it in banks at that time. They didn't have federally insured banks. Digging a hole and burying money was considered a valid practice for safeguarding valuables. In and of itself, that's not the problem. The problem is the servant was entrusted with the money. Not for stowing it away in a safe place, but for stewarding it, for growing it. It's the deliberate disobedience that's the problem here. No self respecting household steward does what this slave did. Imagine for a moment that you hire a financial advisor. You turn over your money to them to steward and to help grow. And after a few years, you check in on it only to find that all they did was put it in a safe deposit box and did nothing else with it. You would be pretty upset. Not only has it not been stewarded to increase in value, it's actually become less valuable because of inflation. If the advisor had at least put it in a bank, it would have gained some interest to offset that inflation. The plot twist is not that all this is that not all of the slaves are faithful slaves. Not all of the slaves are obedient. The plot twist is not all who call themselves a follower of Jesus Christ are truly his disciples. So what now? Well, a long time passes. The hardworking slaves are doubling their money during this time. The lazy slave seems to be passing the time in pleasure and ease, living off of his master's resources, right? He's buried the money. He's doing no, if it's buried, he's got nothing to work with. So now he's just relaxing, living it up at his master's expense, (laughs) Like those described in chapter 24 who are eating and drinking with no thought toward God or accountability toward the end. They go about indulging in the pleasures of this life. Presuming upon God, as we saw last week, with no concern for the consequences. And let's be honest for a second. Sometimes we look out and we see people who seem to have it easy and we get jealous, don't we? We get jealous of their Lack of worry, their lack of concern, the ease of this life. That is until the sun shows up, or accountability comes into play, or in this case, in this parable, the master arrives. In verse 19, after a long time, the master returns. And upon his return, we read that he settles accounts. Simply a reference for asking them to show the results of their time and their effort. It's not all that different from what Paul tells us in Ephesians. Redeem the time. Make the most of your time. Buy back your time because the days are evil. Notice that in this parable the emphasis has shifted from the unexpected nature of Christ's return to the lengthiness of the time. And the discipline and hard work that is expected of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And it gets to the heart of, what do I do while I wait? And the answer is, work hard. Jesus really does provide some pretty clear clues, by the way, that his return will not be quick. It may be near, but it's not soon as we would count soon. And so there is accountability for how we spend our time on this earth. And that accountability is really the focus of our story. After a long time, the master returns, and in verse 20, the first servant comes to his master. And the language that's used, that, that word brought is the word for bringing an offering, or it's often used for bringing an offering. And he's bringing the, the profit. Notice he, he's still got the other five talents, but what does he bring? He wants to show him what he gained. He wants to show him the, the produce, the profit from his work and his effort and his time. And by using that word brought, the hearers, would have been reminded immediately of the bringing of sacrifices and offerings to God going all the way back to Abel in Genesis 4. For example, the writer of Hebrews, when describing Abel bringing his offering, says in Hebrews eleven four, 4, by faith, Abel offered, it's that same word, they just use, our translators use the word offered, not brought, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was Righteous. This first servant, who doubled his five talents, is praised, especially for his faithfulness, and he's given two things: increased responsibility and a share in the master's joy. Now, that term "joy" may be a bit abstract. I mean, what does that mean to share in the master's joy? But we have the previous parable, so it can help make it a bit more concrete for us. In the previous parable, the faithful bridesmaids entered into somewhere, didn't they? Where did they enter? Into the wedding feast. The wedding feast that belonged to the groom. Being in the presence of Christ, celebrating with him, eating and drinking with him, rejoicing with him. That's the promise that they have. That's what it means to share in his joy. It also is a promise of rest. But again, you've got to put it in your biblical glasses, because we're not talking about rest the way we think of a vacation. There is no work. It's not the cessation from work, but it's rest from sin, cursed toil, from hardship. Instead, it's talking about service that will no longer be by the sweat of your brow. Have you ever had jobs to do that didn't feel like work? Maybe you wanted to surprise someone, and so you got to work, and you had to work really hard, but you were so excited about what you were doing, it didn't feel like work, That's what it's going to be like all the time. And here are the promises that the faithful slave will enter into the joy of his master. The master is the groom of the previous parable. It is Jesus Christ, and the joy is the same. The reward is the same, to be serving in his presence. Rejoicing in his presence. Eating and drinking in his presence. And what of the second slave? Well, the second slave has been faithful with what he has been given. And we hear the same words. The same words of praise when he brings his offering to the master. To both of the first two slaves, the master says they have been faithful. And they receive the same commendation. Notice also, perhaps more, I should say, interestingly, the master says they've been faithful with few things. Now, doesn't that sound like a misstatement? I mean, we just talked about how much money this was. I, I don't care whether it was then or it's now. Five to ten million dollars is a lot of money. That's not a little. That's not a few things. Well, the first slave, I mean, he was entrusted with a hundred years worth of wages. Second slave, 40 years worth of wages. There's really only one way this can be a few things. By comparison. A lot looks like a little when it's placed next to a lot more. My kids think I'm tall until I stand next to a professional basketball player. <laughs> Suddenly I look small. The greatness of what they will be entrusted with as faithful servants of the kingdom makes anything look small. That's how significant the reward is. It makes millions of dollars by our reckoning. Millions of dollars look Minuscule, as if it's nothing. As large as it may seem in this life, whatever you've been entrusted with, it will pale in comparison to what God has in store and what will be entrusted to the faithful steward in the life to come. Remember what we saw a few weeks ago. Faithfulness does not mean an end to work. It means more responsibility and greater work in the kingdom of God. The difference is it will no longer be constantly fighting the thorns and the thistles and the sin of this life. Something that's quite honestly hard to even wrap our minds around. Note two, the master says, well done, good and faithful slave. Now, that's an odd thing to say. It it might not strike you as odd because you've heard it, especially if you've grown up in the church, you've heard that statement quite a number of times. It's very common. But if you were there hearing this parable for the first time in that culture, that would have been a rather odd thing to hear him say. You see, a master does not praise a slave for simply doing what they're supposed to do. As great as doubling the money was, under the ancient Near Eastern Code of Hammurabi, that was the bare minimum profit that was expected. It's the bare minimum of what was expected of a slave who had been entrusted to steward their master's wealth was to double it. So by anyone's reckoning, anyone's accounting, they had simply done the bare minimum of what was expected of them. And yet, they are praised. And it's not a small attaboy and a pat on the back. It's exuberant. It's public praise in front of everyone, followed by great reward. And it's really setting up an interesting contrast to the accusations of the unfaithful slave Because so far, this master appears to be anything but cruel and demanding. He lavishes praise on slaves who do the bare minimum of what is expected, who are simply faithful. And then he goes on to reward them far beyond just a simple sharing of the profits of this life. They have a seat at his table. They enter into his joy. It becomes clear that the accusations that follow are intended then to shift blame away from a disobedient and guilty conscience. Contrary to the accusations that follow, this master is unbelievably generous to those who love him and work hard for him. That other side of him, the side we see at the end of this parable, is revealed only against his enemies, those who willfully defy him and are disobedient, and so in the next few verses, we watch as a slave becomes a prophet, or at least he makes a self-fulfilling prophecy in verses 24 through 30. That third servant accuses his master of being a hard man. That's a, another word for that is cruel, as being a cruel man. The slave defines that cruelty by saying he profits off of the back of others without doing the work himself. What's the slave accusing the master of being? Lazy accusing him of being lazy and selfish. How's that for irony? The slave has been living off of the resources of the master, eating his food, sleeping in his house, while doing absolutely nothing for this very long time. Completely ignoring his responsibility, subsisting or living entirely off of the generosity of the master. And now he has the audacity to try and make it look like it's really the master who is lazy and cruel. The servant tries to blame his own laziness, his own self-serving life on the master, saying he was fearful. Which again is an accusation that doesn't hold water with what we know about the master so far. Doing the bare minimum generated great praise, great reward. The only reason to fear is if you were lazy and disobedient. And there it is. We have a glimpse into the character of the slave. He was inherently lazy. He was inherently disobedient, so there was reason to fear. Perhaps, too, he's jealous of having been given less than the other two. So in a rather spiteful act, he returns to his master what belongs to him, nor more, no less, making excuses along the way. That's really putting it mildly. He maligns and accuses him. What this servant overlooks entirely is his responsibility to his master and his obligation to faithfully perform his assigned duties. And that failure betrays his lack of love for the master, which again he masks masks by blaming and slandering him and excusing himself. Well, how does the master respond? The master condemns the servant on the basis of the servant's own words, words which really do nothing more than prove the slave's guilt. If the master was so hard, should not the servant have put the money where it would have been relatively safe earning interest and required no work? In other words, be lazy, but earn me something while you're being lazy. (laughs) The master's words in verse 26 have an implied if. And really, there's an intended sarcasm to them. The reality is this is not a cruel or selfish master at all. But like all good lies... All good, slanderous accusations, there was a kernel of truth in what the wicked and the lazy slave said. It is true, the master expected a profit and good stewardship from what he entrusted to the slaves. But the motivation was very different, very different from what the wicked and lazy slave would have you believe. The master doesn't provide work to punish or to threaten but to provide opportunity for stewardship so that he might reward abundantly and lavishly. The slave has misunderstood and mischaracterized the motivation. He has maligned the master's character. It's like a child who misunderstands why their parent has rules. Let me ask the children a question here. Let me ask you, aren't your parents, isn't it true that they're just mean and they're unloving Don't they really hate you because they won't let you eat sugar and drink soda all the time? Aren't your parents just cruel taskmasters? Because they want you to do school and not watch television and play video or computer games all day long. And isn't it clear that your parents don't love you? They're just mean people because they make you wash your hands and avoid germs that would cause sickness and disease. What about chores? I mean, parents profit from their child labor. Labor. It's not like it will actually prepare you for greater responsibility. It's not like it will help you later in life, right? All these rules, all these chores, the only explanation could be cruelty and selfishness, right? You See the irony? When you stop and think about it, you realize that this wicked slave has completely misunderstood, mischaracterized, and maligned his master. He has ignored the real reason the master expects his slaves to work so that they might receive great reward. So that they might be prepared for the life to come. The sad end of the slaves come in the final verses. The talent entrusted to the wicked servant is taken from him. The relationship between master and servant is severed forever. It's given to the man who has ten talents. Following what we might call a kingdom rule that Jesus has already taught back in chapter 13, verse 12. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. What is it that they have and do not have? The fruit of faithfulness. You might insert that word fruit or profit. Whoever has fruit, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not bear fruit, even what he does have will be taken from him. The wicked servant is declared worthless. You see, to fail to do good and use what God has entrusted is a grievous grievous sin. Laziness in this life is a grievous sin. Solomon in Proverbs makes it clear in many different ways. And the result is not only the loss of what was originally entrusted, but a far worse punishment. The rejection by the master. Banishment from his presence. Followed by tears and gnashing of teeth. Don't be mistaken. Accountability will come in this life. Do not be so quick to be jealous of those who seem to have it easy in this life. Sometimes that accountability comes in this life, and we see that. But if it's not in this life, it's always in the next, for the one who presumes upon the master. Laziness and lack of faithfulness to Jesus Christ in this life will result in painful consequences in the next. What becomes abundantly clear is that obedience and stewarding, what the master has entrusted to us in this life, will have reward. Watching and being ready does not mean idleness and laziness. We're not done yet. Because I think there's a possibility that at least a few of us have a question we're trying to answer as we read and study a parable like this. We think, okay, I, I understand the reward, I understand the consequence, but didn't the master give or entrust the other slave with a talent? Doesn't that mean he was a Christian? What does that mean about my salvation? And I don't want to address that question because I think it's a fair one to ask and might keep us awake at night. But I don't want to simply say yes or no. I want to reason through it together by asking a few questions. First, did the slave work at all with his talent? Did he do anything with it? The answer is no, he buried it. Did the slave show any obedience? No. Did the slave love his master? That's pretty clear that there's a hard no there. In fact, he says he was afraid of his master. As we've talked about, there's only one reason to be afraid. Did the slave really even know his master? I think the answer is no. He made false accusations. He maligned his character. He twisted the truth. Does that sound at all like someone who is a true disciple? No, I would suggest this. The slave was given a talent in order to prove, to demonstrate that he was not even a faithful slave to begin with. He was an imposter, a wicked and lazy, untrustworthy slave. But you see, what it shows is how patient and gentle the master was. He knew this already, he had measured them up. That's why he gave him only one talent. And yet, he gave him one talent. And he let him live off his generosity while he was away. He gave this wicked slave every opportunity for repentance, to change his pattern of behavior. He allowed him to taste of his mercy and his grace and his kindness and his goodness. But there was no repentance, there was no change. Instead, the wicked slave... Saw the master's gift as a threat, so the slave demonstrated his true character. This is not a story about losing one's salvation, but rather of how, as James says, faith without works is dead. In fact, Jesus provides the very same basis for the rest of James' entire analogy there in James two, fourteen through seventeen, in the third parable that we'll look at in a couple of weeks. But like the previous parable, this parable and this teaching is directed primarily to those who have heard the message of the kingdom. Because there is a terrifying reality. Many persons who call themselves Christians and followers of God will find themselves in the outer darkness on the day of judgment. And I'm not the one saying that. Jesus said that. He said that all the way back at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But who? He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This parable makes it clear that for all those who in the guise of serving Christ really live for themselves, the payback has eternal ramifications. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you love God or are you afraid of him like this slave was? Do you only see God as demanding and expecting? Do you only see God as judge and executioner? If that is you this morning, and in a room in a group of this size, I imagine that there is more than one. If that is you this morning, I invite you to look at God through the lens of the gospel. Because that is the only way to change your perspective. The gospel demonstrates that while we were still sinners and enemies of God, haters of God, Christ died for us. Tell me, what type of God would send his own son to die for those he hates? In a verse that is well known, but as true as it was when Jesus first spoke it that evening to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave, that is, he offered up as a sacrifice his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, will not be cast into the outer darkness, will not experience weeping and gnashing of teeth, but rather everlasting life. Does that sound like a cruel God? Like a selfish God? I invite you, I beg of you this morning to know the love of God. And it starts by confessing that you are a sinner. That you need Jesus Christ as the offering for your sin. Love for God begins by trusting in Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 4 we read in verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God in him. By this love is perfected so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Now there's another message this morning for those who are believers in Jesus Christ. Prepare. Be good stewards. Be faithful. The point is not that the first slave earned more than the second, but that both used all that they had, all that they had been given to the best of their abilities, and their reward is essentially the same. So what do we learn from that? Be faithful with what God has given to us. Don't go around comparing yourselves to others. Notice that the second slave did not apologize, nor was he rebuked for not turning his two talents into five. He was exuberantly praised for being faithful with what he had, all that was required of him. That's it. How often do we compare our faithfulness to the work and efforts of others? How often do we try to organize our life around the Facebook, Instagram, or public perception of another person, another Christian? how often do we think I'm a failure because I don't have it all together like they do? And again, I'm not saying don't work hard. Don't give yourself an out. I'm not saying don't be disciplined. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm saying work hard in your own yard and stop looking over the fence. Stop comparing the size and the shape of your yard to someone else's. And do it immediately. Like the first two slaves, take seriously the responsibility. Do not say you will wait until tomorrow. Be faithful with what God has entrusted to you today. And when you are faithful, it is likely, even in this life, that you will have more entrusted to you. That's a reality. And don't get discouraged when that happens. Just remember, God is continuing to prepare you for the life to come. And that means entrusting us with more and more as we prove our faithfulness. It'll be little by little, it'll continue to be added to us. But that what we are entrusted with will rarely, if ever, look the same as our neighbor. So stop being discontent. Instead, put your hand to the plow. Work hard at loving God and loving others, preparing for his return. Be faithful with the gifts, the abilities, yes, the talents God has given you in this life while you prepare for the return of our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, and the life that is to come in the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we give you le- thanks this morning for the lessons you've taught us. Thank you for the instruction that you have provided, the Through this parable, this metaphor, this analogy, we learn so much and we are reminded to be disciplined. In lieu of a deadline, help us to keep the kingdom and eternity in focus so that we might be faithful disciples, faithful servants, faithful slaves of you, that we might hear that commendation on the day of our reckoning Well done, good and faithful servant. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's all stand as we sing together.